Hello, church. I hope everyone is doing well. All right, good. I thank you for the response. You didn't have to, but I appreciate that. Um, fellows at the RCMU, we are so glad you are with us. Um, people in the coffee venue, thank you for being here. And everybody in the auditorium, thank you. It's awesome to have you guys here. My name's Todd. I don't know if you know that yet. I mean, they've been talking a lot about me at the beginning. Um, but I'm the student pastor here. And if you missed last week, just to kind of get you caught up, we're doing a prayer, a prayer series um, called Say Something. And last week, Pastor David talked about the importance of us having prayer in our lives on a regular basis because prayer has this ability to where we get to see the power of God, get to pull into that just power. And so that's why prayer is so important. But as David pointed out last week, there's two things that usually hold us from praying. Either we're too busy or we're overconfident, thinking we don't need God. And so I hope this last week, if you kind of took the challenge and started praying more, that's awesome. I hope it's really starting to have an impact in your life. Today, here's what I want to wrestle with. I want to wrestle with what is your attitude, what is your mindset going into prayer? Because I think that's very important for us to wrestle with. So to start it off, I have a little story for you guys. It has to do with my two-year-old daughter, Emma. Um, Because we're going to be talking about control and surrender, and she gives us a great example of control. Because she is in this phase right now where she thinks she should have everything. Now, if you have a two-year-old, you kind of know what I'm talking about. If she wants a cookie or if she wants this, she just thinks she should have it. Right now, we even have a little one with us. She thinks she has the right to go and just touch him or hit him if she feels the need to do that. And we're like, please stop, you know. But then she's mad because we told her to stop. But like, it, just like any two-year-old most of the time, they, they will start crying. They will start losing their minds thinking, if I do this and this, maybe I'll get what I want. Now, this happened recently where it was just a prime example of this. Um, Tina's parents came into town this past week, and um, my daughter loves getting her toenails painted. Now, she would like to get her fingernails painted, but she can't handle it. Um, She starts playing with them before they dry or sucking on her fingers, and we're like, well, we don't want finger polish in your mouth, so let's not do that. Um, So, um, but whenever she gets them done, you know, she does this thing to where she'll walk around to everybody and be like, pretty, pretty, and like, look at my toes, look at how great it is. So, you know, grandma's in town, and so grandma and mom get together like, hey, let's do your toenails. Emma's so ecstatic. And then they get brave enough to be like, hey, let's actually try to do your fingernails. And it actually worked. It actually worked, it dried, and she was so excited about this. So if you see my daughter, she will be a two-year-old running around, um, and if she has her shoes off, you can say, hey, cute, you know, toenails, cute fingernails. And she'll be like, pretty. Um, so there came a point two days later, though, after they got it done, where she had scratched it off or sucked it off. I don't know what happened. But there were some now the finger polish was gone on some of her fingers. So mom comes in and is like, hey, let's redo them. Redo them. Every, she's, mom's putting away the polish. And then that's when it happened. Because Emma wasn't done. And was like, I would like to do it myself. And so she um, all of a sudden lost her mind. And so this is how the 
it starts. She starts crying uncontrollably. And I have a little picture for you, as you can watch this. This is stage one. (laughs) Then she does this thing, which is kind of actually one of my favorite moves from her. She'll lean into you and then point at the thing that she wants. And you'll see in this next picture. Now, she didn't know how to say finger polish, so she was just like, that! You know. And then, if it gets really good, now this one didn't get to that extreme, but if it gets really good, then... Then she will all of a sudden lose it, and tantrum is on, like full, full fledged. Like, and it's amazing to me. It is. I'm going to throw myself to the ground. I've lost all control of my body. I am hitting and swinging. I don't care who I hit. Just losing her mind, thinking if I do this, then I'll get what I want. But it's fascinating. Like cry, point, lose it, and then. And and I'll be honest with you, I shouldn't do this but I laugh sometimes. Because it's funny to me. I'm like, you're doing all, that is a lot of work happening there. It's not going to change the circumstances. Because I'm like, this two-year-old's trying to control this almost 30-year-old. Trying to tell me, like, listen, I'm doing all of this. You should give me what I want. Now, we laugh at that because we are like, oh, yeah, that's most kids. But the reality is, now think about that in our relationship with God. God, if you would just do this, do this, and do this, if you would just fix this, and then maybe God doesn't do it. He says, no. God, whatever. I'm done with you. And we get mad. And we, some of us, we just walk away from God. And so I press in today to say, we have to be careful about acting like a two-year-old when it comes to prayer. And you're like, whoa, it just got real in here. Yeah, because I was guilty of that. As I was studying this, I'm going, oh, man, there's been so many times I've acted that way. Talking to God and saying, God, why wouldn't you do this? Why wouldn't you make this happen? Why wouldn't you do this? And, and there were good things. God said no, and I was just angry. And I thought if I just threw a little fit... Maybe God will notice. The funny part to me is when it comes to control, now some of you in the room, you may be like, well, I'm not that way with God. I don't do that. Well, okay. So let's just kind of take a poll in the room to see who is kind of a control freak, okay? (laughs) Okay. So there, I have an article here, Five Signs of a Control Freak. Now, I have to set some parameters on this because some of you laugh because some of you are thinking, finally, Someone's going to tell the person next to me that they are a control freak. I've been waiting for this for so long. It's, it's about time. No, 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 no. Stop it. There will be no eyes going towards the person. There will be no nudging. There will be no clapping. Thank you. Someone said it. See, all of you are already ready. You're like, yeah, yeah, say it. Do it. No, no, no. Here's the deal. When I say these things, see if they apply to you, not to the people around you, okay? Jeez. Number one, you believe that if someone would change one or two things about themselves, you would be happier. Yep. All right. Number two, you micromanage others to make them fit your expectations. Mm -hmm. Number three, and this is one of my favorites. 
You judge others' behavior and passive-aggressively withhold attention until they meet your expectations. If you've had a parent like this, or maybe you've seen parents like this, oh, we're not talking until you fix your behavior. Right? Number four, you change who you are or what you believe so that someone will accept you. Number five, you have a hard time with ambiguity and being okay with not knowing something. Now, for me, I'm like, man, I'm about, you know, three or four out of five on these. I'm a little bit of a control freak. Now, some of you in the room be like, Todd, I'm, I'm not. I'm a free spirit. <laughs> no one controls me. I don't try to control anybody. It's just how I roll in relationships. <laughs> okay. All right. So I think this may, if we do that, those people... Let me change it a little bit. And for all of us in here, let me change it a little bit. I'm going to repeat those, but with this question. Do any of these apply to your relationship with God? Number one, you believe that if God would change one or two things about himself, you would be happier. Think about that. God, if you would just do this, if you would just make this happen, if you would just fix this, I'd be happy. Even making the ultimatums with God. God, if you'll do this, do this, I'll serve you for the rest of my life. Number two, you micromanage God to make him fit your expectations. Some of you be like, well, how do you micromanage God? I've done it. I grew up in church. So I kind of knew the right things to do, possibly to get what you want from God. So whenever I wanted a big prayer, I was like, okay, well, this week, I better spend an extra, extra time reading my Bible, extra time telling my mom and dad I love them, and my wife and my kids, telling them in and, and prayer, being like, God, you are the best that ever exists, making sure I go to church an extra five times that week, serve, and, you know, so many amount of times, and like, if I do all of this, then God will answer my request. Micromanaging, Right? Three, you judge God's behavior and passive-aggressively withhold attention until God meets your expectations. God, you didn't answer what I wanted. This is not how we, what we talked about, what we discussed. You know what? We're having a little break. I'm not talking to you for a while. Trust me, some of you have probably had this prayer. Oh, God, yeah, yeah, we're done for a while. Until you fix what's going on around here, yeah, I'm done talking to you. Number four, you change who you are or what you believe so that God will accept you. Yeah, I've done that. I remember walking through high school and college thinking I had to be this perfect person in order for God to accept me. Had to put on the right clothes, had to look a certain way, had to act a certain way. And for some of you in here, you may be like coming to church for your first time. It's been a long time since you come to church and, and you are so nervous because you're thinking, I don't know if, man, if everybody knew my story or I don't know if I dressed right or I don't know, oh gosh, I'm so nervous. <laughs> Amazing part I find about this church is you can come however you are. You can dress however you want as long as you are wearing clothes. That, like, that's, <laughs> that is the key part to this. All we ask is wear clothes and just come. Like that's, we don't, we don't expect you to be perfect. 
but I know we think we have to be. And the last one, you have a hard time with ambiguity and being okay with not knowing something. I think, I think that's true for all of us in this room. So many of us are like, God, if you could just tell us the future, <laughs> if you could just tell me what decision I should make, if I should do this or do that, like just, just say something. And then he doesn't seem to answer. It's amazing to me how our attitude most of the time, maybe not all the time, but most of the time is, is usually we're trying to control. And I think that's just kind of our human nature on some levels. We just have a tendency to like, man, I, I just want to fix this. I hate not knowing. I hate not getting the answers I want. And so that's why I want to ask this question. Is your prayer life about control or is your prayer life about surrender? Because I want to walk you through what does control look like and what does surrender look like? And so to start off, we're going to look at this relationship that you see in the Bible between Peter and Jesus. Jesus being the son of God, uh, one of the most influential men ever in history. And then you have Peter, uh, one of his disciples, one of his good friends. Peter was actually a very big historical figure as well. But both of these men are fascinating to kind of watch the relationship that was going on there. Because you have, like, Jesus who went and pursued Peter and said, Peter, I want you to be a disciple. I want you to be um, someone who I, I pour into and teach. Now, the fascinating part is many of you may not know this, or maybe you do, but Peter was actually one of the older ones of all the 12 disciples. A lot of the other ones were kind of like 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, to where Jesus is 30 at the time when he starts all this, so that kind of made sense, but Peter actually was the older one. He may have been the oldest in the group. He may have been late 30s, maybe even 40. So you think about it, like he's, <laughs> Peter's with all these young guys, and you got Jesus, who's 30 at the time, and he's the oldest. I don't know about you, but when you feel like you're the oldest, I'm the oldest in my family, got two younger brothers. Trust me, there's many times where I have felt I am the one in charge, because I am the oldest. You should all listen to me. And so I want Peter probably had those moments as well. And so Peter and Jesus, whenever they had these just epic moments where you're talking about just conversations where Peter tried to control things or where Peter tried to surrender, it's amazing for us to learn just kind of what happened there. Because know this, when in regards to control, control reveals that we want the power. So let me give you some stories about how Peter tried to step in and say, Jesus, let me have control. So there's this one moment where Jesus is telling the disciples, hey, I, I need to go back to Jerusalem. Now you're thinking, well, that's not too big of a statement. It was then because Jerusalem at this time does not like Jesus or the, his disciples because Jesus has kind of made some enemies with all the religious figures, all the high leadership there, they wanted him dead. So when he says this, all the disciples are like, are you serious? Like, you know we shouldn't go back there. And Peter, being the older one, looks at him and is like, 
listen, Jesus, I have something to tell you. I mean, listen to this, Matthew 16, 22 through 23. But Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Reprimanding Jesus. Always a good call. <laughs> Heaven forbid, Lord, he said. This will never happen to you. Jesus turned to Peter and said, get away from me, Satan. You are a dangerous trap to me. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Now put yourself in Peter's shoes a little bit. You just got called Satan. Look at Jesus like, oh, that seems a little extreme. Couldn't go with jerk. Had to go with Satan. Really look at the rest of the disciples being like, really? Did you guys hear this? I just got called Satan. But you would have not, like at that time, like that would have hurt. One of your good friends just calling you out on something. And the crazy part is, is Peter wasn't, doing it for a bad reason, not even really that selfish of a reason. He's going, Jesus, I, I don't want you to die. I don't want you to put your life in jeopardy. Most of us in here would have probably done the similar thing that Peter did, trying to take control of the situation, being like, God, why did, we don't have to do this. You don't have to make this choice. And some of us have in this room. We're looking there going at God, going, God, why are we doing this? Why are you wanting me to go this direction? Why are you pushing this? Peter's doing the same thing. (laughs) He gets called Satan for doing it. Now there's another moment, Matthew 26, 33 through 35, where Jesus is again telling them, hey, just to let you guys know, pretty soon here, I'm going to be arrested and I'm going to die. Which, if you had a friend that was always predicting their death, you'd be like, please stop. Like, this is always a downer when you bring it up. All right? And so, and then Jesus added this part. He's like, hey, just to let you know, you guys are also going to desert me. And that's when the disciples be like, well, we're not going to desert you. And Peter all of a sudden stands up and is like, listen. And so he says this. Even if everyone else deserts you, I will never desert you. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, Peter. This very night before the rooster crows, you will deny three times that you even know me. At this point, I just feel like Peter's probably yelling, like, no! Even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And all of the other disciples vowed the same. Now, I'd recommend go read all of chapter 26 in Matthew. Because you'll hear the rest of the story. I'll give you the cliff notes of it. But pretty much what happens is Jesus goes and gets arrested. People t- the army takes him, takes him back to Jerusalem. All the disciples leave him. All run. Now, Peter ran, but he ran just far enough away to where he could watch Jesus from a distance. And so he was able to kind of keep tabs on like, okay, what is happening to my friend? What is happening to Jesus? And then eventually, as this is happening, as he's getting closer and closer to the city, because, you know, he's following them, people keep coming up to him and saying, hey, aren't you, aren't you a good friend of Jesus? Aren't you like a disciple of his? And he kept saying no and no. And then here's the third time where he says it, Matthew 26, 74 through 75, Peter swore, a curse on me if I'm lying. I don't know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. Suddenly Jesus' words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows, you will deny three times that you even know me. And he went away weeping 
bitterly. I look at both of those incidences, and here's what I find. Fascinating. Peter was trying to control situations for good reasons. Trying to control his friend from being killed or even put in harm's way. Trying to control even his own life and making sure that he didn't die. Because when Jesus was arrested, like, you just don't know, what if they arrest me? What if I die? And I think most of us in here, we probably would have acted the same way where we'll try to grab control when life gets really desperate. When life seems to be getting out of control, that's when we go, okay, I've got to figure out this. I've got to do this. And the crazy part to me is every time Peter tried to grab control, he got hurt. He got called Satan, and then he went back on a promise that he made to Jesus. Most of us would be pretty shook up by what we did. And some of you in here, you could probably relate with Peter. You've had these kind of conversations with God. And I think, most of us in here, I think of it this way. How many of you have actually played the game tug of war? All right, nobody, except for one person. Great. Um, So let me tell you what tug of war is. It's where you have a rope, one person over here, one person over here, and you pull against each other. Whoever can pull the other person wins. So... This example I think of is, I think when it comes to our prayer life, sometimes we'll be like, all right, God, it's time. Life is getting desperate. We're like, God, let's do this. I have a way of doing things that I think could fix this. I need you to grab the rope. Let's fight this out. Let's do something. I need you to answer me. I need you to hear me. And you have this battle with God, and that's what your prayer life has turned into. God, answer me. Do something. And you know you may not win this battle, but you're just hoping he'll hear your way. So that he may, because you're like, maybe he didn't hear it. Maybe he doesn't understand it. Fascinating part to me is tug of war. This right here is probably the biggest match, biggest mismatch ever. I mean, you're going against God. Probably not going to win. And to show you just a big mismatch within tug-of-war. I have a video to show you, just for your viewing pleasure. That whole video just cracks me up. I mean, how do you get 18 guys? Yeah, I I think we can do that. Yeah, this is not a setup at all, you know. But you saw the mismatch there, and that's the truth. Like, if we were trying to do this tug of war with God, we'll lose. And the amazing part to me about God is he'll go, I'm not going to play this game with you. 
you can try, but I'm not going to play this game. Because when we try to control, we start a power struggle with God. When we try to control things, we start this power struggle. And God's going, I'm not going to do this with you. I mean, take you back to my two-year-old. That's what she's hoping. She's hoping that, well, hey, we'll get into this argument or you'll eventually see my side and you'll get what I want. And I'm like, Emma, we're not going to play this game. God does the same thing. Because I think he wants us to realize, because to be honest, I think many of us in here think that we can control our lives. We may not say it out loud, but our actions show that. We think if I do this and this, then this stuff should work out. Reality is, is we can't control our lives at all. We have no control. And it always hits home when something happens that's completely unexpected. You know, death happens, or you lose your job, or something that you can't control happens, and you're like, holy cow, I have no control of my life. I have no idea how this works. And God's going, that's why I'm not going to play this with you. It's totally unfair. It's not even right, because you think you have control. You don't. And the reality is, we don't. God is the one that created all this world. God is the one in control. And either we figure out he's got the power, or we kind of play this fake game of thinking we have the power, when we know we don't. But yet our prayer life would almost sometimes say that we think we do have control. And so... You have the option of kind of having this attitude of control and getting God to do what you want, or you could surrender. Surrender reveals we know who has the power. Now, I know that may sound like, okay, yeah, duh. But let that sink in for a little bit. Surrender reveals we know who has the power. It would change your prayer life. It would change even how you see life. If you know God has all the power to do or not to do, then your prayer would be more like, God, I'd love for you to fix this. I would love for you to change this. But if you don't, help me take whatever next step I need to take. That's a powerful prayer. And that's why I think God never tells us, no, he wants us to ask for things. He wants us to be asking. He wants to bless us with things. However, we have to be careful with our attitude going into it. Because if we already think we deserve it, God's going, whoa, 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 we got to deal with the heart first. We've got to have a surrendered heart. And the reality is, is God may say no. Even if you have the surrendered heart, you, he may say no. Because he's got the power, we don't. And when you recognize that, your prayer life changes where you're saying, God, you do what you need to do. Help me know what to do next. And the crazy part is, is when you see this in Peter's life and their relationship with Jesus, it's powerful. Matthew 16, 16 through 17, there's this moment where Jesus is asking the disciples, who am I? (laughs) I think many of the disciples are there going, is this a trick question? I think it's Jesus, right? But obviously, I think they were starting to notice, okay, maybe he wants something a little bit deeper. So they're, they're starting to say, like, oh, some people have called you a prophet. Some people have called you this. Some people have called you this. And then Peter says something very profound. Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God, recognizing that Jesus has the power. 
Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You didn't learn this from any human being. Now I say that you are Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. Now, was Peter perfect at surrendering? No, obviously not, because in the next moment, he's telling them, Jesus, you can't go do what you want to do. You're putting people's life at risk. But then there's other moments where he says, you're the living son of God. You're the Messiah. That's why I say this journey of releasing control and learning how to surrender, it's not an easy one. But whenever we have moments where we surrender, just like Peter did, catch this, Jesus looked at Peter and was like, Peter, proud of you for what you said because you listened to God on this one. You surrendered your heart on this one. And because of that, you're going to be the one that helps build this church. And when Peter looked like, because at the time, this idea of church had not started yet. And he's like, what is church? And eventually Jesus kept showing him. And and showing him, hey, church is about people gathering together and celebrating who I am and learning about who I am. And Peter was the one that began that. The reason we gather today is because many years ago, Peter took that challenge and did something about it. All because God said, I'm asking you to do it. And it was in a moment where he recognized who Jesus, who God really was. Now there's another moment in Matthew chapter 14 where Jesus gets done feeding the 5,000 men and you could even add probably about another 10,000 or more to that because that didn't include the children and the women that were there. And so he's tired, he's exhausted from dealing with that many people And so he says, disciples, go on out uh, to the sea. I'll catch up with you later. So the disciples get in a boat, and they're out in the middle of the sea, and all of a sudden, a storm comes up. The storm is going everywhere, and disciples are getting really scared that they're going to lose their lives. And here comes Jesus walking on the water. (laughs) All the disciples are freaking out at this moment. They're like, not only is there a storm, there is some guy walking on the water. I'm a little scared right now. Now, Peter was the only one that did something that was pretty unique. Listen to this. Then Peter called to him, Lord, if it's really you, tell me to come walking on the water. Yes, come, Jesus said. So Peter went over the side of the boat and walked on water towards Jesus. The reason I believe God looked at Peter and was like, you have the right heart, is because there are moments like this. You don't see too many other disciples doing things like this. Peter started to understand the importance of surrender. He's the only other guy besides Jesus that I knew, that I know of, that has walked on water. And because of these moments where he surrendered, he got to see God's power move in his life. And that's what it is. When we surrender, we have the opportunity to see God's power. But if we go in trying to control it, we're never going to see it. Because God's not going to play that power struggle game with you. When we surrender and say, God, whatever you want to do, that's when it becomes powerful. Because you may not get the answer that you want, but God may actually have a bigger thing for you anyways. God may actually have to walk you through what it means to trust him again. God may have to walk you through what it means to forgive somebody. God may have to walk you through. It may be something bigger than just answering the prayer that you want. God's going, I I got a bigger picture if you'll let me show you. 
if you'll give up the control. And so then the question may become, okay, how, Todd, how do we surrender? How do we start doing that in our lives? <laughs> I wish I could tell you I've got some formula or something like that. But there isn't any. It's actually a hard journey that you go on. And it's, this is the part I love. Like the reason that I got asked, and, and I'm so excited David asked me, is because I've been walking this through this last year. So I'm excited that I get to speak about this because this last year I've been walking out something where I wanted to grab control of it. I wanted to hold on to it. But God is teaching me how to surrender it. And it hasn't been easy. So I want you guys just to kind of watch something that's been going on in my life recently. About seven years ago, I came out here to Fountain Springs to be this student pastor. And to start off, we had probably about 10 or 15 students, and the leaders were my wife and I. And so it was a little daunting at first because I, I'm not the greatest at music, so we didn't have a worship band or anything. So our youth nights consisted of about 30 to 40 minutes of games and then 30 to 40 minutes of teaching. Not ideal. It, it was a pretty rough start to begin with. But this journey that I've gone on now to where the student ministry is at, to where, man, this past Wednesday, we had 276 students. Um, I've got a coaches team. I've got so many volunteers now that help. And our, and our ministry is just doing some amazing things and getting so healthy. Life changes happening in students' lives. Even right now, thinking about NTS camp, we've, we've got over 140 students going to camp. And, and it's just awesome to be a part of. And it's like what you dream about as a student pastor. And then David, in the midst of all of this, asked me, hey, have you thought about ever being a campus pastor? And it kind of rocked my world a little bit because I was like, no, <laughs> don't ask me right now. Everything's going great. This is perfect. This is awesome. And, and, I, and my initial thought was, no, David, I don't, I don't want to be the campus pastor. I love what is going on in the student ministry. Preset all your pretty feelings May they comfort you tonight And I'm climbing over something And I'm running through these walls I don't even know if I believe I don't even know if I believe I don't even know if I believe Everything you're trying to say to me I don't even know if I believe 
everything you're trying to say to me So open up my eyes Tell me I'm alive This is never gonna go our way If I'm gonna have to guess what's on your mind came to interview, it was beginning of June 2008. Uh, it was pouring down rain and the basement was flooding and I had no idea what to do. It was my first week on the job as pastor here. And all of a sudden, Todd's grabbing mops and towels and we're cleaning up this crazy full water basement. It just, it, it was horrible. And Todd's interviewing, I'm trying to impress him. And, and there's water everywhere and he's getting all wet, it's horrible. But, but what was cool about Ty is we saw it then, and, and it's never stopped, this incredible heart to do what's necessary. And, and, and so Todd got married, and, and he and Tina moved up here. And the more and more we've gotten to know Todd, and, and as he's, I've watched him teach, and I've watched him learn, and I've watched him just really grow, uh, it's been cool to watch him just be all about doing whatever God wants him to do. So you fast forward and, and God's asking us, hey, I, I want Fountain Springs to be one church, but multiple locations. So, so we start praying and looking at that. I had no idea what that meant. In, in essence, on where in Rapid City, where in the area, we're gonna put other Fountain Springs locations. Start praying, knew that's what God wanted us to do. And the first thing, the number one thing you've got to process is who's gonna lead this other location? which uh, from my vantage point is scary. Uh, letting someone else lead a site that I won't be at, but, but have the DNA of the church. And so lots of prayer went into this. And, and one person kept coming to my mind, coming to my mind over and over and over again. And it was Todd. And I didn't know if, is that me? Or is that God? And continue to pray. And it, it was evident that God wanted Todd to be the leader of this new campus we were going to launch. 
So I put it in front of Todd, and, and Todd did what just about any one of us would do, is, is initially go, I don't see it, I don't know. And so that's what he said, no. Now, uh, I knew he didn't mean it, because you're not allowed to, to tell your boss no. But so he processed it and thought about it, and he, he prayed about it. What was cool was Todd, I watched him wrestle with what God was asking him to do. And the way he wrestled with it was just conversations over and over. And he Todd would come tell me, he's like, hey, I've been talking to God and I'm wrestling with this and I got these questions. It wasn't some big epiphany moment where all of a sudden, he's like, yeah, I'm so excited. I've got no worries, no stresses. It was, hey, I feel like God's leading me and is pressing this on my heart over and over, this idea of leading another campus. So we talked about it more. Eventually he said yes. And what was cool was Todd, you could see in his countenance, you could see in his his eyes, you could see how still and at peace his heart was. When he finally took a conversation with God and put in obedience to it, it wound up being awesome. And and this peace overfilled him. And, and, and now Todd is, is thinking about and dreaming about this, but he's had to mentally, emotionally walk through uh, stepping out of leading the student ministry, which is it's a big deal to him. Uh, his heart's really there. Um, but what what Todd, you'll see in his heart, is this constant, um, God, what do you want? What do you want? What do you want to do? What do you want me to do? How, how does that interact with each other? So uh, Todd jumped in, and now we as a church are going to have multiple locations, and uh, all rooted in conversations with God and obedience in that. And it's been cool to watch Todd just grow and grow and grow in that. Church, I'm going to be the East Campus pastor. And thank you for that. It means so much. But these last couple of months have been really difficult because I've had to talk to the students about it. I've talked to the leaders about it. And know this. I love the student ministry because of where it's grown and how much it leads this church. Students leading the way and serving, leading the way and being leaders. I love that. I think a student ministry should always be the key to the church. That's why I love God putting me in this role. I was like, God, I love this. I, I want to stay here. This is awesome. I mean, you think about it. Whenever you go to a game or anything like that, it's the students that start the wave. They're the ones that bring the energy. They're the ones that help this church do what it needs to do. And that's my heartbeat. And I was like, God, I don't, I'm scared to give that up. I love that. I don't, I don't know if I could do the East Campus thing. And part of me is like, I don't want to start over again. But God looked at me and was like, Todd? If you do this, that means more families are going to hear about Jesus. That means more people are going to hear about Jesus. That also means more students are going to hear about Jesus. It's like, you're right, God. And throughout this time, I kept going back to this mindset that Jesus had where he told his disciples, okay, pray like this. 
your kingdom come, your will be done. But the amazing part to me is like, we could just say that prayer, but man, there was a moment where Jesus lived it out. He is staring death in the face, about ready to die for all of our sins, for everything. And he wasn't even guilty of any of it. And he says this in Matthew chapter 26, 38. My father, if it's possible, let this cup of suffering be taken from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Powerful that God asks us to do things that he's already done. He understands how important it is to have a surrendered heart. Because when you have surrendered heart, you get this ability to see God's power move. Jesus was the one that helped all of us be able to be saved. Because he went to the cross. And trust me, he also had all the human parts of him too. That was like, can we take care of this? Can we do something else? Peter got to see it as well. The moments he surrendered, the moments that God moved in a powerful way. And so church, if we want to be a group that surrenders, we got to start doing this. we got to simply pray, not my will, Lord, but yours. And then listen. Not my will, but yours. And then listen. If you joined the texting group last week and you were getting reminder texts about praying, this week you can join as well, but this will be sent out every day in the morning as a reminder, God, not my will, but yours. A simple prayer, but it's a surrendering prayer. And church, we gotta be a group that starts praying with a heart of surrender knowing that God has the power to answer however he wants. We just need to rely on God. Help us take the next step. Help us know what to do next. And the other part I would say is change your prayer life from being about what you want to about what God wants. Change the focus. It's not easy. It's a journey you go on. And trust me, there'll be tears. There'll be tough moments of giving up control because we like it. But the truth is we can't handle it either. When we learn to let God take over, when we surrender our prayer life to him, surrender our lives to him, it's amazing what happens. And church, as a group, we've got to understand it's not about what this church wants to do. It's about what God wants to do in this church. And then make it more individual. It's not about what you want to do within your life. It's about what God wants to do in your life. Will you surrender the control to him? Because if we start going into our prayer life with the mindset of God, you have the power. However you want to answer this issue, may I know what to do next. May you show me what to do. It's a powerful prayer. Not my will, Lord, but yours. So here's the question I'll ask. Will you surrender? Will you surrender?